tenth commandment reads thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife nor his manservant nor his maidservant nor his ox nor his ass nor anything that is thy neighbor's I pointed out in our treatment of the first commandment that the Roman Catholic Church has eliminated the second commandment uh, or I should perhaps say incorporated the second commandment into the first commandment to get round the problem which the second commandment um, clearly presents namely that it is wrong to try to worship the true God by making a graven image of the true God by amalgamating the second commandment into the first Rome has that combined first and second commandment uh, functioning in such a way that Rome is able to attempt to give the interpretation that the only thing condemned there is worshipping false gods other than the true triune God and that in worshipping the false God one must not make a graven image of the false God in other words, it is quite in order to make a graven image of the triune God, the true God, or one of the persons such as Jesus Christ, thus Rome. But we saw that that isn't so. However, with the Roman Catholic amalgamation of the first and the second commandments into one commandment, Rome would, of course, end up with only nine commandments instead of ten. And so to get the tenth commandment, after what Rome has done, Rome splits this actual tenth commandment into two um, so that the first portion of verse 17 thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house becomes to Rome the ninth commandment and then what follows thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife etc becomes the tenth commandment I hope you can immediately see in looking at Exodus 20 verse 17 just how artificial that Roman Catholic distinction is for even if it were possible to distinguish between coveting your neighbor's house being a thing and your coveting your neighbor's wife being a person if Rome were correct that these are two distinct commandments the first of the two prohibiting coveting things such as a house and the second prohibiting coveting persons such as your neighbor's wife um, or I should say wife, manservant and maidservants which are all persons why then would the commandment go on at its end to, to mention other things that can be coveted such as the ox, the ass or anything that is thy neighbor's those would clearly belong with the house would they not and so for these reasons we must reject the Roman Catholic contention and we must say that what this commandment is indeed uh, prohibiting is coveting anything that belongs to someone else however on the Catholic construction it would be possible to say uh, that as long as you're not coveting your neighbor's house in terms of what they would call the ninth commandment and as long as you're not coveting your neighbor's wife your neighbor's manservant or your neighbor's maidservant etc in terms of the tenth commandment that you are not breaking either of these commandments and someone drew up the interesting little ditty thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's 
house. His ox thou shalt not slaughter. No, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. His ox thou shalt not slaughter. But praise the Lord, it isn't a sin to covet thy neighbor's daughter. Now, frankly, that's being a little facetious. Because what is clearly prohibited in this commandment, as you see in the very last phrase, is the coveting of anything that is thy neighbor's. So it is a sin to covet your neighbor's daughter too. Of course we must distinguish between your neighbor's married daughter and your neighbor's unmarried daughter. It would be utterly wrong ever to consider the possibility of wanting to cohabit with your neighbor's married daughter. As regards the neighbor's unmarried daughter, it would not be coveting her if one went about courting her in a decent fashion with the approval of the neighbor, uh, with a view should God so, uh, so um, intend for marriage to result. And so too it's not a sin to see something that your neighbor has, uh, to wish that you had something similar to that, as opposed to wishing that you had the very same thing that he has, something similar to it, and then determining by working harder, by saving more money, by investing it more wisely, etc., to accumulate sufficient wealth so as to be able yourself to buy something similar to that which your neighbor has. Nor, of course, if you have the funds immediately available, uh, is it sinful for you to go to your neighbor and say, you know, I've just seen that nice uh, Rolls Royce in your driveway. And I was wondering whether you consider selling it. And maybe the neighbor says yes. And if he does sell it to you, well then clearly you haven't broken any commandment. You've just appreciated the Rolls Royce. If the neighbor says no, I'm afraid that's not for sale. It belonged to my great uncle Harry and it runs in the family. Uh, we can't part with it. Well then of course you must accept this. And say, well, could I take a look at it? Because I think I'd like to save up and buy a similar model. And you'll probably say fine. And then you do save up and buy a similar model. You haven't coveted. So then, what this commandment is centrally telling us to do, as the child's catechism tells us, thou shalt not covet means be happy with what you've got. Be happy with what you've got. In other words, don't wish that you had things that belong to other people so that those people would no longer have those things if you were to have them. The commandment, thou shalt not covet, means be happy with what you, you've got and don't wish that you had those things that other people have that you think would be nice if you had them in a situation so that they would then no longer have them or of course be compensated by you by means of sale for having them. Don't covet. Now, question 147 of the Catechism asks, what are the duties required in the Tenth Commandment? And you can see that if God says negatively, thou shalt not covet, it implies positively the opposite, thou shalt be content with what thou hast. The duties required in the Tenth Commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections regarding him tend unto and further 
all that good which is his now first of all we are to learn to keep this commandment thou shalt not covet by being content with our own condition in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 we read let your behavior be without covetousness and be content with the things that you do have for God has said I will never leave you nor forsake you in 1st Timothy chapter 6 we read godliness with contentment is great gain to gain things more and more either honestly and particularly dishonestly um, if not coupled with godliness um, is of course really to make a much lesser gain than we would be making if we have godliness and contentment we need to see that to be godly and to be contented with what we have uh, is a great gain what have we gained? not more material wealth at the moment but we have gained something and what we've gained is very precious what is it? we have gained happiness and some people the more they want and the more they grab the less happy they become there are other people who learn to be content with what they do have and they go on being more and more contented and they gain more and more happiness and honestly what is life really all about uh, at, at the uh, bottom line than being happy and truly to enjoy God forever and so contentment with what we have at the moment is one of the very important ingredients coupled with godliness uh, for uh, gaining happiness however not only are we to be content uh, with what we have but we should also be desirous of expanding our wealth in an honorable and uh, a moral way if it should please God to do so at his good time uh, here I'd like to take you to 1st Corinthians 7 which says if you are a slave don't let it bother you because even if you're a slave that belongs to another man as his private property and he owns you if you are a Christian then though you're a slave to someone else you are a free man in Christ on the other hand Paul says if you are a free man and not owned by someone else as his slave if though a free man you are not a Christian you're a slave to the devil you see and if you're a slave to the devil you're in much worse shape than you would be in if though a slave to another man who's not the devil you are a free man in Jesus Christ and not Satan's slave and so what Paul is saying is not a defense of slavery as being a, a desirable condition that we should all want for ourselves he's not saying that but he's saying do see matters in perspective it is better says Paul to be a Christian slave than it can ever be 
to be a non-Christian who is not a slave, who is not owned by someone else. That's the first thing that we must understand. Having said that, Paul goes on to say specifically to Christian slaves, however, if as a Christian slave you are offered the opportunity to gain your freedom, of course, he means if the slave owner offers you your freedom, or if there is a way in which your slave owner says that you can buy your freedom, if you work a little harder for the next six weeks, six months, whatever, that he will then liberate you by all means, says Paul, accept that freedom, advance. Don't keep on being a slave any longer than you need to be, but advance. And it may surprise you to know that some people do want to be slaves. Some people do not want to be free men. Because if you're a slave, although it's terrible if uh, your slave owner is a cruel man and mistreats you and beats you up and underfeeds you, which is a very stupid thing for any slave owner to do because you've paid good money for the slave and you're hoping the slave will work for you for several years, five, six years, whatever, and if you're not going to give the slave enough to eat and give him a nice fire at night to keep him warm in the winter, your slave can die after he's only worked for you for a year or two, and then, of course, your investment's down the drain. So only an idiot of a slave owner will mistreat his slave, obviously. And, of course, it's not all that bad for the slave while he's the slave. Because <laughs> the slave does not have to uh, undergo risk uh, in setting up a business which could flop and fail in order to earn money, uh, to buy food, clothing, uh, housing, and to provide for his children. That's all the job of the slave owner. You can, in a sense, say that the moment the slave owner buys the slave, the slave owner becomes enslaved to the slave to take care of the slave and the slave's family and that uh, there is this burden which is placed upon the slave owner of now feeding and taking care of a great deal many more people than he had previously remember that Abraham the father of all the believers owned 314 male slaves in addition to the wives and the children of those slaves probably well over a thousand people can you imagine here is Abraham one man with his own small family a wealthy man of course he had much gold and silver and uh, herds of cattle but even so trying to feed a thousand people every day trying to clothe a thousand people every day keep them warm in winter to keep them cool in summer to wash them to get soap to them and all the other things that uh, people need even if they're slaves working for a family slavery is like polygamy you know uh, it may seem to be nice for the slave owner to have many slaves it may seem to be nice to be the polygamist and to have many wives but when you've got to start taking care of your wives as a polygamist and their children and their in-laws and their outlaws and put up with all of their bickering uh, you begin to see a much greater degree of acceptability and desirability of monogamy and frankly of not owning slaves at all and so though while we are to be content with what we do have if we 
are offered an honest way in which to improve our lot to acquire our freedom if we're a slave to expand our estate if we are free people we should utilize it Christianity never sanctions people being totally satisfied with what they have to the extent that they do not desire in an honest way to expand what they have Christianity does order all of us to be content with what we have until such time as it might please God to give us additional things and even then only in an honest way but the further thing that we are required to do in this commandment thou shalt not covet is to maintain a charitable frame of our soul our whole soul toward our neighbor in other words we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. and really if you love your neighbor as yourself you're not going to want to have the things that he has so that he wouldn't have them or compensation for them if you did who is thy, my neighbor and you remember that Jesus in the reply to that question who is my neighbor in the parable of the good Samaritan made two things perfectly clear I think to the Jewish lawyer first of all that even the Samaritans that is that nation most hated by the Jews at that time were the neighbors of the Jews all men are your neighbors no matter what they look like or how little they care for you but second your real and closest neighbor is the person that God brings into your life there's two points in the parable of the good Samaritan about who is my neighbor the first is even someone of a totally different race and culture is your neighbor but the other point in that parable that we often lose sight of is that your neighbor is the person that you stumble across not expecting to encounter him because you remember in the parable uh, the Samaritan um, was on his way we know not where but he was not expecting to find anybody beaten up and lying in the gutter be it Jew or Samaritan and quite unexpectedly and surprisingly did the Samaritan stumble across this other human being he was surprised that was his neighbor and would have been his neighbor even if the person in the gutter had been a fellow Samaritan point of fact it was a Jew but the Samaritan had the insight to know that that man was his neighbor though a Jew so your neighbor in a sense is the person closest to you in need in other words if someone bangs on your door at 3 a.m. that you've never seen him from Adam and he says I am dying through lack of blood I've been stabbed three streets away could you please phone the police and if you say to him what do you mean banging me up at 3 a.m. go die outside you've not acted in a very neighborly way to that individual of course what you and I must do whatever his religion whatever his skin color whoever he is we bring him into the house we immediately phone for the ambulance we tend for him as best we can we give him strong coffee or whatever and we help him as best we can so we need to have this charitable frame of mind toward our neighbor as you walk down the street past a palatial house 
uh, you may not uh, know at all who lives in that house and not care but if you say well I sure wish I had that house and maybe when these folks go on vacation uh, I'll move into it <laughs> I'll kill them on vacation and then I'll occupy their house and you start plotting uh, to bring that about you haven't got a very charitable frame of mind towards your neighbor you see and you don't have to know your neighbor personally for him to be your neighbor your neighbor is anybody that you stumble across or whose possessions you stumble across as in the case of the person that you've never seen whose palatial house you've seen and who you begin coveting if you remember that that house that you are coveting is owned by a man who is your neighbor even though you've never even seen him then you will quit coveting that house because you have a charitable frame of mind toward him now what degree of charity do you need to have toward your neighbor the catechism says with your whole soul not just to be a little bit charitable toward him you to be charitable to love him with all of your soul or as Jesus said thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart with all of thy mind with all of thy body with all of thy soul with all of thy power this is the first and the greatest of all commandments and the second commandment somewhat like it is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself we're not to love our neighbor more than ourselves for by doing that we would be loving ourselves less than our neighbor and God requires us to love ourselves as the image of God even as God requires us to love our neighbor as the image of God but we're certainly not to love our neighbor less than ourselves either well now would you want someone to steal your goods that he's been coveting when you had your back turned of course not if you are then required to love your neighbor as yourself surely this must mean that you must in loving him have no covetousness toward him that could lead you ultimately to steal what he, he has because you certainly wouldn't want him to do this to you now this charitable frame of our soul toward our neighbor is to be such says the catechism as that all of our inward motions and affections regarding him tend toward and further all that good which is his in other words when we think about our neighbor whoever he may be every thought that we have about him all our inward motions all the affections that we feel should be devoted toward him in a charitable frame of mind and should be directed toward him and beamed upon him to further his possession and enjoyment of all of the good things that he has the things that are good for him now what about the things that are bad for your neighbor supposing you see that your neighbor has uh, a racehorse which uh, he's always backing on and losing a pile of money on well there too when you look toward your neighbor you should be praying and hoping that God will give the opportunity to explain to him that he really does need to get rid of that racehorse if he doesn't know how to get rid of him you'll be pleased to take it off his hands not because you want the racehorse and you're going to put it in your stable but because it's destroying him you see uh, and uh, so 
there may well be situations when you may want to take things away from your neighbor. He's, he's drinking too much. He's got a bottle of booze. And no, no, I'm not going to give it to you, he says. You want to take a swig. No, it's not that I want to take a swig, but I don't want you to take any more swigs. Now, you've got a charitable frame of mind toward him. Your desire to take it away from him and perhaps even keep it yourself so that he can't get hold of it to his own detriment with his permission is not governed by your desire to grow richer at his expense. It's governed by a genuine desire to further his own real, true welfare. Let us now turn to the negative uh, part of this commandment. What are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our own estate. We need to learn to be happy with what we have. Job says in chapter 31, If I ever rejoiced at the destruction of anybody who hated me, or lifted myself up when evil was found, and then he goes on to say, May God then justly punish me. We're told to rejoice with those who do rejoice. Romans 12. Uh, we're told to wish peace upon the walls of the Christian church and those that dwell there. Psalm 122. Uh, I will seek thy good, says the psalmist, the good of all of his fellow Christians. Paul writes, 1 Timothy chapter 1, the end or the goal of the commandment and especially of the tenth commandment as the root and the finishing point of the ten commandments the goal of the commandments says Paul is charity or love thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself in Esther chapter 10 we are told that uh, Mordecai sought the wealth of his whole people in other words what you and I should be out to do is not just to grow wealthy ourselves but particularly to seek the wealth and the enrichment of the people to which we belong. 1 Corinthians 13 says charity or loving one's neighbor properly is patient and is kind. It has a kind and a charitable disposition towards one's neighbor. Charity or this kind disposition towards one's neighbor does not seek its own doesn't put yourself first nor last but seeks to love the neighbor as ourself we're told to rejoice in the truth and to bear and to endure all things now then discontentment with our own estate is condemned in many parts of the word of God I'm thinking here of 1 Kings chapter 21 where we're told that Ahab came into his house you will recall very heavy hearted very much displeased because of the word which Naboth had spoken to him because you remember after Ahab's wife Jezebel had nagged Ahab morning noon and night to just go and take from Naboth Naboth's vineyard which uh, Jezebel wanted Ahab to take as king so that she Jezebel could enjoy it 
that Naboth had refused to do this saying to the king well I really can't let you have it because it is a family inheritance and I want to keep it and instead of accepting this as God's providence we find Ahab coming into his house mumbling and very very displeased discontented coveting Naboth's vineyard and we're told that uh, Ahab became so discontented and so covetous that he went and he lay down upon his bed he turned away his face and he wouldn't even eat bread like a child he just sulked and made himself and everybody else thoroughly miserable and the further development of that of course was his wife said listen are you a king or are you a mouse and the expropriate in the name of the state from Naboth this vineyard and you'll have it anyway and this says quite a lot about this whole area of state expropriation of private property to make highways and then having done that decide oh we're not going to have a highway but that expropriate oh well we'll give it to the governor as a site for his country residence or whatever something that we really need to ponder even in today's uh, world uh, the right of the state to do this sort of thing with private property which does not belong to them so too in Esther chapter 5 you remember that uh, <clears throat> Haman was a wealthy man he had everything he wanted but when he saw Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate that is as a king's counselor filled him with envy with discontentment with covetousness and gnawed into his soul until he reached the point that he devised a plan to butcher every last Hebrew living uh, in uh, Persia at that time 1 Corinthians chapter 10 encourages us Christians not to keep on murmuring about our lot as some of the Israelites in Old Testament times themselves kept on murmuring until God's patience ran out and God sent a bunch of snakes among them you remember to destroy them and to put an end to that murmuring so then we are not to be discontented with our own estate the second thing which the tenth commandment thou shalt not covet forbids is envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor envying our neighbor Galatians 5 tells us do not be desirous of vain glory or pride do not provoke one another do not envy one another James chapter 3 says if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts do not glory and do not lie against the truth for wherever envying and strife is there is confusion and every evil work in the third place thou shalt not covet forbids us to grieve at the good things that our neighbor owns and forbids us to grieve when good things happen to our neighbor or when he acquires additional goods that we don't have Psalm 112 says the man who disperses and who gives goods to the poor his righteousness <coughs> endures forever 
his horn, the horn of the generous philanthropist, shall be exalted with honor or lifted up. But the wicked, when he sees it, is grieved and gnashes with his teeth and yet in his time melts away because the desire of the wicked shall perish. In Nehemiah chapter 2 we are told, when Sanballat and Tobiah heard of Nehemiah's beginning to erect the city wall round Jerusalem, this grieved them exceedingly. But now finally Nehemiah had appeared a man who was seeking the welfare of the children of Israel. These two men did not want to see anyone come forward as a public benefactor to help the Israelites. And when, in the person of Nehemiah, someone did come forward, it grieved them. And you know that they came to grief. And so we should not allow ourselves to be grieved at the prosperity of others. Nor uh, should we ever grieve when it has not yet pleased God to prosper us in the same way that we see that God is currently prospering other people. Last, the sins uh, forbidden in the tenth commandment thou shalt not covet include all of the inordinate motions and affections that we feel toward anything that belongs to our neighbors. In other words, it's not just our desires to unlawfully enjoy the things that our neighbor is enjoying that are sinful but every inclination in us that is not yet that desire but which could lead to it is itself sin now this is an important point because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that concupiscence that is a tendency toward desire is not in itself sinful says Rome it is only when the desire is yielded to, says Rome, that the non-sinful concupiscence or inordinate affection towards such a desire becomes sin. The word of God, however, makes it quite clear that not only the actual act of desire of something illegitimate is sin, but every sub-factor uh, which could lead to that desire of uh, an inordinate nature is itself sin and so we are told in God's word in Romans chapter 7 for example I would never have known what sin is except by the law I would never have known what lust or desire is if the law had not said thou shalt not covet however sin once it took occasion or began to take root by the commandment sin worked all kinds of concupiscence within me do you see that sin once it's taken place in the human heart not only works desire or covetousness but sin works all kinds of concupiscence uh, sub actions which themselves finally result in desire so that even the very least um, direction within us away from the law of God even before it results in desiring what isn't ours is in itself essentially sinful 
Romans 13 tells us these things thou shalt not commit adultery thou shalt not kill thou shalt not steal thou shalt not bear false witness thou shalt not covet and if there is any other commandment it is briefly comprehended in this saying thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself and in Colossians 3 Paul tells us the same thing he says kill or put to death mortify those portions of your personality which are still worldly namely fornication uncleanness inordinate affection that is attitudes towards people that are less than completely loving evil concupiscence that is sinful tendencies in the direction of covetousness and covetousness itself all of which is idolatry why? because idolatry is not to love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, body and soul and the moment that your love for that God cools off you will inevitably begin to set your affections on something else and in that way break the tenth commandment you may not desire Deuteronomy 5 your neighbor's wife nor his field his house his manservant his maidservant his ox his ass or anything that is your neighbor's anything at all one last observation have you noticed that just as the first commandment thou shalt have no other gods before me thou shalt love me the one true God with all of your heart mind body soul and power really is just the other side of the coin of the tenth commandment because if you covet God alone who is the only one that you should covet you will never covet anything else then you will say with the psalmist in Psalm 73 what have I in heaven or else or in heaven or earth beside thee O Lord there is nothing else that I desire O God than thee thyself so you see that we begin to slip away from the first commandment loving God with all of our heart mind body and soul when we begin to covet other things Eve loved God with all of her heart mind body and soul until she set her affections on the forbidden fruit and then that led to the inordinate concupiscence and finally to the desire and then the stretching out the eat and the seizing and the eating of the fruit and when that happened that became an idol to her showing that not just the tenth commandment but all ten from the ninth uh, the 10th, 9th, 8th and so on way back up the ladder to the first were all broken with one fell swoop the Ten Commandments then is a closely tightly knit system if we break one of the commandments we break all of them for it's like a chain with ten links the chain itself is only as strong as one of the links as soon as only one of the links is broken the whole chain is broken and just as each link of the chain is 
interlocking with at least one other link and sometimes of course with more other links if the uh, if the links of the chain are interlinked with one another so too are uh, the various aspects of the Ten Commandments interlinked with other aspects to form one royal law it is in tomorrow's lectures that we will consider the personal the family and the social application of this royal law as the tool uh, of the Holy Spirit par excellence in our Christian reconstruction uh, as Christ's uh, limbs as portions of his body uh, to bring to realization the Christianization of this universe for which he shed his most precious blood we perhaps have time for one or two questions Yes, uh, developed to the nth degree. I don't see how one can perhaps distinguish the inordinate affection and the concupiscence, distinguish it from its further observable development in covetousness but I don't see how one can sever the two uh, one is clearly the fruit of the other but the way in which they would um, of course uh, uh, explain it uh, I've already outlined and that is they regard the tenth commandment as exhausted as long as it's not your neighbor's wife or house that you're coveting um, if you just manage not to covet the neighbor's wife and house uh, or manservant or maidservant uh, then whatever other inordinate affections there may be in you to tend towards coveting other things is not in itself sinful and you know that the Roman Catholic Church teaches that God created Adam before the fall with concupiscence with concupiscence but it was only when Adam yielded to that concupiscence that sin took place whereas the word of God teaches nothing of the kind the word of God teaches that God created Adam upright, holy, knowledgeable and uh, in his very image any further questions? The point there, the brief my question on the last, in the last section, concerning the uh, misrepresenting precisely what God has said to Satan or when he misrepresented what God has said about the proof, did he in fact sin in misrepresenting what God has said? I've thought a lot about that, and of course uh, some would see a problem in that, uh, in that we are told that it was through Adam's sin that the race fell and of course um, some would think that if Eve sinned by misrepresenting to Satan what God had said or if Eve sinned by desiring the fruit before Adam himself later partook well then how could the race only have fallen when Adam partook however that's not really a problem 
You see, the race is cursed by God, the human race, uh, because of Adam's eating of that fruit. Not because of Eve's looking at the fruit, telling untruths about the fruit. It's altogether possible that there was human sin in the Garden of Eden before the particular sin of Adam eating of the fruit. I'm not saying that there was, I'm saying it's altogether possible. But God said that what would bring about the death of man was specifically the eating of that fruit. And so I would have to say that whether Eve was sinning or not sinning in her conversation with Satan and in her desiring the fruit and even touching it that if at that point God had intervened so that the fruit would not have been consumed then I would say the race would not have fallen but there's some of these matters that frankly we don't have too much scripture on and uh, I think we'd be better uh, advised uh, not to dwell upon them all right, you're all ready to go home and get an early night uh, before we get into the marathon session tomorrow. Very good, then. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. 
there is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.